Hello, my name's Sam Breakgear and welcome to The Sociable Podcast. On this episode, we're going to be discussing pornography. Ironically, pornography is a material that takes up a lot of internet activity. However, it's something that we very rarely discuss. I mean, understandably, you're not likely to strike up a conversation with your mum or your co-workers about this sort of topic. If you did, you might get some weird looks. But there is a lot of mixed research out there. And there's also a lot of concern regarding the health consequences of uh, internet pornography and the accessibility of it. So to discuss this topic, we're going to speak with Lynn Camella, uh, Associate Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Las Vegas, along with Michael Denin, Co-Founder and Executive Director of Valiant Living, who focuses on addiction, including pornography. Michael Denin. So to start the show, if you would be able to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do and your line of work. Sure. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker as well as a certified sexual addiction therapist and a, I have a certificate in addictions counseling with the state of Colorado in the United States, um, as well as a certified spiritual director. So I've been through a bunch of different certification programs and my undergrad was at Boston College but that's when I was still using and acting out in my own behavior so I sort of married my own uh, personal healing with my profession and a lot of people do that in the addiction world and in the intimacy disorder world as well as mental health uh, some people get well some people don't so that's why counseling is interesting Find, finding the right counselor is always interesting uh, because uh, a lot of people bring their own stuff into the field with them. Um, so there's a, so there's a, I've been uh, clean and sober myself for 27 years. And then I also have been in the field of addiction recovery for 25 years. And, and so I've seen a lot of, of, in the behavioral health field, I've seen, I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. And right now I own my own treatment center because of that um, for men 30 years and up. There's a lot of treatment centers right now that treat treat everybody, 18 and up, men and women. And what happens is you get a lot of young opiate addicts uh, coupled with in the same treatment centers with older sort of alcoholics and all. And it doesn't really mix that well. So I've I've decided to just really focus on older men with that are that many times married to have partners and have children careers and everything's imploding and my team tries to help them uh tries to help them with everything their trauma their addictions their self-esteem shame their work issues money issues um shame issues everything so it's it's really a lot of this stuff and and when we get into the pornography i'll show you how a lot of this stuff just gets fused with other things and triggered by other things so so if you try to treat everything separately like the mental health people want to just treat the depression and anxiety they think everything's going to go away and the uh, addiction people want to just just treat the addiction and then everything else is going to go away and psychiatry wants to medicate everything and then everything else is going to go away and it's actually a really team approach to help somebody spiritually, mentally, emotionally, psychologically. So that's pretty much my my mission 
is to bridge all the worlds together in in the psychology world and show that show that when you package it all together and work as a team you can really help people and to what extent do you find that um pornography addiction uh i suppose affects your your clients or your patients sure i would say uh technology in general is uh is is really deeply affecting the the clients in particular uh Pornography for the, for you know anybody forty and below, um, it's it's almost supercharged. So in the past, people would find their dad's Playboy or penthouse, and they'd get interested in uh, pictures, and they'd start acting out. But now it's sort of like going from from nothing to shooting uh, intravenous meth and heroin all in the same day because. Uh, because technology, everything's accessible, and the whole and the pornography industry is incredibly smart, just like tobacco, just like the alcohol, where it's not some creepy guy in a basement uh, with a video camera. It's it's Harvard MBAs who are saying, let's get these people hooked and start flashing images by the age of like six six to nine, where they where they have an imprint on their brain, and they call it the hedonic set point, where they can start affecting. The brain where to the point where now I, I guess there's an astronomical amount of uh, college age men who have sexual dysfunction uh, that this has never been the case. And it's just because of these false images and this addicted addiction to the unreal that the actual real present intimate sexuality has been d diminished to a point where people can't even get aroused at this point, right? So so we could talk more about how the brain's affected and and we could talk about how pornography is, uh, is affecting the male. The male brain is towards more, uh, towards more objectification and violence towards women. There's a researcher, Gail Dines out of England, a feminist researcher. It's interesting how all of these... Uh, People that you wouldn't suspect are are sort of all seeing it. Where where feminists and the Christian Church are saying, "Well, this is this is super demeaning to to women," and are kind of uh, realizing that if we don't all pair up together and fight like big tobacco, it's going to this is just going to take out a whole generation of people. Um, and and you're right, no one's talking about it. And I can get into just sort of like how how people get sucked in and then how it affects them later. Uh, but um, I want to be a little bit more concise with my, my answers to your questions. <laughs> no, that's great. That, that's pretty much Sorry. sums up. No. Um, so I suppose, do you think that there's common characteristics between the people that you treat who do have like a, a real severe addiction to porn? Sure. So um, just a little history. There used to be, People that we, we call them intimacy disorders because a lot of times it doesn't have a whole lot to do with sex. Um, if you look at somebody that um, has an addiction to, say, alcohol, um, there's certain criteria that you would you would go through to make sure that they're not just a heavy drinker or a partier or a problem and have a problem that they've actually really truly crossed the line from from uh, from cucumber to pickle. Like they're not they're not ever going to go back to being normal. Um, in their in their ability to just have a few glasses, pints of beer, um, but they're they're actually 
uh, have gone to a point of no return where they have to do complete abstinence. And those that's tolerance, withdrawal, uh, continued use despite adverse consequences, loss of time with family and friends, loss of control. Once you take, take the substance into the body, you can't control how much you're going to have. There's also a, a mental illness component to it where the brain starts to tell you, this time it's going to be different or, or, uh, or it's been a while, it's been a month since I've done this, so I can, I can get away. So I can quit. I just can't stay quit. That's the difference between – these are some of the differences between somebody with an addiction and somebody with a problem. Same exact criteria for uh, work, food, exercise, sex. Um, so you would inc- in sex addiction, you would include pornography, which is the largest. There's there's uh, like probably 50 subsets of sex addiction. Pornography would be the biggest because of the Internet. Since the Internet, what's what's happened is there's been an explosion of everything and anything. So it's you don't have to take a risk. You don't have to go down and get beer muscles at the bar and, and take a risk, hit on the person, um, take the risk of rejection, being in public. Um, spending money. You can do this right as we're doing it right over Skype. And it could be anonymous in your hotel room like I'm in in California with uh, with no risk with with uh, and no money. And and so it's taken all the barriers away. So now and, and then there's also everything and anything. So the escalation, we call it escalation in the addiction world or tolerance goes goes up extremely fast when it comes to porn so people might look at pictures and then they might look at free sites and then they may look at paid and then they start acting it out so it's a uh um i would say i would say over 50 percent of the men i treat are addicted to pornography when they come in or at least uh being on dating sites and acting out through some sort of technology they're they're addicted to it and they don't even realize it when they get there it's so normal for them it's like the the water that they've been swimming in for so long that they don't even see that their brain is uh hardwired towards um towards acting out with technology it's a very high number especially one one out two yeah um so like i said when i entered this uh, um when i went to start this podcast I was of the idea that pornography is like impacts the brain like a drug, um, very mm-hmm. much like yourself, like what you're saying. I reached out to I have yourself as a guest, and I also have a, a gender studies uh, professor who I reached out to, and I was speak. I reached out to her and I asked like, "Oh, are you concerned about the the impact of pornography on the brain like a drug?" And I was quite surprised to hear her um, hear her beliefs. Or when she responded, she actually said. Um, she believes that uh, she says the scientific studies that she knows of don't support the claim that pornography impacts the brain like a drug, nor do they support the idea that porn addiction is actually a real thing. She believes that there are religious groups and anti-pornography advocates that make these kinds of claims, but the science does not support the idea that porn is actually a drug. What would you have to say to that, or what, what do you think about that idea? I would respectfully say that that's a hundred percent horseshit. You know, so like what ha- what happens is uh, it's true. Like people are so against uh, the fact that uh, religious people are make pornography into a morality thing that they try in every way, shape, or form to 
See, what happened was back when they pathologized homosexuality in the DSM, uh, the DSM, which is a manual, I guess, that, you know, psychologists and counselors use to get reimbursed by insurance companies. And so people have been so protective over the last decade, two decades, to make sure they don't pathologize any type of sexual activity at all because it could end up being traumatizing towards a, a group of people. But the reality is if women, if women really can't, uh, like did a little bit of research, um, the gender studies people, as well as like extreme feminists, they would realize how horribly, uh, what ends up, you know, today's, today's porn is tomorrow's mainstream, right? And what you see in porn a lot or, and it all it all leads to this is you see violence towards women. You see a lot of demeaning uh, things happen that starts to imprint on the male brain. They have these things called uh, money shots at the end, where the guy actually comes in the in into the uh, woman's like face or eye. They shoot for the eye, and you're seeing an enormous amount of um, eye, um, uh, uh, you know, cancer and all sorts of uh, problems. With, um, I mean, this is just one sliver, but you see, you see men, it's called eroticized rage. You see men that have built up anger towards women from rejection or from mother issues or from, from all sorts of, uh, and you see it acted out on porn all the time. So there's violence towards women just all the time throughout the pornography industry. It seems to be, it seems to be one of their main their main products is is violence towards women, and so so it's a traumatizing it's traumatizing for women. A, the science will show all the spec scans, all the MRIs will show a same part of the brain uh, addiction is in the same part of the brain for a chemical as well as a behavior. So the preoccupation phase, like when I think I'm going to go out and score a prostitute or or I'm going to um, start acting out on behavior, the same part of the brain starts to light up even before the person starts using, just like a cocaine addict who goes and gets the money, gets the cigarettes and is on their way to the dealer's house, starts to sweat, their heart starts to, their eyes dilate, their heart starts to, their beat starts to increase. Same exact process happens inside a cocaine addict's brain that happens in a pornography addict's brain that, and they dissociate. So there's a, so there, so all addiction is going to lead you towards a, um, a dissociation in one manner or another from reality. So, so all these things are happening, um, the, for, to a T that, and they can prove it. It's just the psychology world fights against it because then you have to say these scumbag guys like Barry Weinstein and and all um, they could hide behind that they were addicted to pornography or something and and the Me Too movement would would have to consider some of these guys aren't just straight up scumbags that you that you should just kill some of these guys are just hope, hopelessly addicted wounded little boys that found that found a way to escape reality and turned it into all sorts of things that have, just like any addiction, starts to impact everyone around them and hurts everyone around them. So if you have a cold, you're going to be sneezing on everyone. Um, they're going to get affected too. So people with sexual dysfunction, intimacy disorders, love addiction, sex addiction, porn addiction, it's going to impact the people around them. For instance, uh, so a guy that you know doesn't have to want, you know, doesn't want to work at at trying to connect in an intimate way with his wife that takes about 15 hours of connection to make a woman 
really feel um, like safe enough and really aroused enough through through emotional connection to want to have sex. If they can bypass that, that risk and be in a fight and go to technology and and uh, look at things that are going to stimulate them and then masturbate and take care of themselves, why would they actually need to put the work in, right? So we're looking at we're looking at things that are not only affecting the brain, but it's ripping apart fabric of marriage, relationships. It's actually turning the male brain more violent towards women. It's uh, and and there's plenty of studies to prove, prove this. Like I said, Dr. Gail Dines, who is a feminist researcher out of England, if you YouTube her, um, she will she will explain the science and she will give you the data. And that's just one person. And uh, and so. I hate to like come against what this woman is saying, but or this man, whoever this is, but they're 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 misinformed about the science behind what porn can do. Yeah, it seems it seems like a far more it seems like a rabbit hole that the more I've gone down, uh, it seems more complicated. Not only in what areas this this affects in society, like you said, like. Um, like responsibility, there's an argument for responsibility. If like this is an addiction, then they don't want to say like, uh, well, when, where, where does the responsibility lie? Does it rely with the companies that produce this? Or then does it rely with the individual or, or whatever? But then that's just one example. But then also the fact that there's div division here. There's division that I didn't even know. I didn't know that there were people that dispute the fact that pornography can be a drug. And um, it's interesting, I've yet to speak with her because Essentially, I suppose anything can be addictive, so it would be hard to d dispute exactly. the idea that something could not be addictive. But I'll I'll find out more. But um, I suppose my well, it's like yeah, go ahead. It's like also saying um, it's also saying like food can't be addictive, and and or and 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 in the United States we have this crazy obesity problem, and everyone thinks it's going to be like education that solves it, when in reality, it's it's not necessarily education or wealth. It's like, well, they can't afford um, to go to Whole Foods and they don't have the education. That's part of it. But most of it is through trauma and emotional issues. People will eat, uh, some people will eat um, due to emotions, right? And so it's not, the food isn't there to nourish the body. It's there for an unintended purpose. So it's just like sex. If you look at, if you look at pornography as like the McDonald's, and Coca-Cola of sex, right? You're 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 actually you're actually using pornography to um, stimulate yourself and get out of uh, uh, and not deal with emotions and arouse yourself in a superficial way, like dropping acid or something, where you're trying to have a spiritual experience through a chemically induced process. Um, a lot of times you'll come out. I've never met anyone that came out of six hours of looking at porn that said, I really feel content, closer to myself. I feel very satisfied with how I use my time. I feel I feel good about who I am. And I, and I really appreciate, I feel nourished by that whole experience, right? Like you would like a, a long walk with a friend or an intense experience or something like that. So, so why, so if you look at, at, at porn as McDonald's, and, and it, you know, meaning, meaning, and you could get addicted to like sugar and grease and like, and carbs to a point where you, if you ever watch some of these documentaries that talk about, you'll feel depressed until you put the drug back into your body um, because there's withdrawal. 
And then you need the you need the actual food, the unhealthy food to get you to feel okay for a minute. But it but it's like beating yourself on the head with a hammer to get rid of a headache. You're you're actually using the substance that's actually killing you to actually solve your problem. Same thing with porn, right? It's like it's like, yeah, you could get addicted to anything. It seems to be sex uh, it seems to be porn is is high on that list of susceptibility to uh to get addicted to so it's it's one of those it's like you don't you don't hear a lot of people talk about um being addicted to bananas or something like that where like they start eating bananas and then they just couldn't stop i went to columbia i found these fresh organic bananas and and now i just every day i have one and then i can't stop well if that person exists i want them on the podcast (laughs) that's an interesting story to tell you know what i mean it's and, and and so it's it's just there, there are other things that are a little bit more susceptible to a full-on addiction. Now, I think the problem is with people like me that want to get the word out that porn, that porn can be very addictive and really harmful, is that, is that we're not saying we're not trying to wipe out the porn industry or wipe out the tobacco industry or wipe out the alcohol industry. We're just saying there's a group of people like myself susceptible to addiction and once they are addicted they need a lot of help to remain abstinent and heal from trauma from all sorts of things and there's a large portion of people addicted to porn if there are people out there that can look at porn and really enjoy it and it enhances their sexual experience with self or others then then it's 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 great go go for it but there's an astronomical amount of people that are suffering silently this is just i don't know why you've decided to do a podcast on this but it's unbelievable what an issue this is even the country of england has said this is like a national health crisis right i mean there's only a few countries and states that have actually stepped up but why is it the biggest industry on the internet twitter uh twitter amazon netflix and uh two other companies come all the people that are on those websites today doesn't even pale in comparison to the amount of people that are watching porn right now in the world. And like, but we'll talk all day long about all the people that are on Amazon. But why aren't we talking about the millions and millions of people that are watching porn right now at work? The lack of productivity at work. Like, let's let's say it's not even an addiction. It's still it's still like ripping through society impacting us in, in a whole bunch of ways that workplaces should be looking at it, marriages should be looking at it, the church should be looking at it, feminists should be looking at it, um, people that care about young men's brains as they're in, as they're being developed, um, as they're being molded till the age of 25, right? We know that, we know that people's brains continue to develop till 25. Why aren't we looking at this like we're looking at weed and other substances on the brain you, you know what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. And like, why? What? What? What is it? Yeah. I think what's going um, on? it will be. People aren't talking about. It will be an interesting. I think it will be interesting to see the impact of this over the next few years, especially over the next twenty years or so. Mostly just because I think internet pornography is something that's really only crept up. It's crept up on us, and it's something that's only 
done so in the past 20 years. So like we, we wouldn't see the long-term effects. Like you're only going to likely to see this from a certain generation. So I think it will, it, it, I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know whether, whether we'll all see it as something that should be labeled as something that's dangerous. Like obviously cigarette packets have like cautions. Uh, I don't know if that will happen or maybe we'll understand that maybe it's not as bad as we think or maybe it's worse. I'm not sure. It'll be interesting to see, but for now, we'll just have to keep doing the research and keep, more than anything, keep talking about it and not being afraid to talk about it. But um, yeah, that's, that's, that's my input. That's, that's the motivation for uh, doing this show. We've always had sex issues in society. It's not you know from day one and we always will. It's just with technology, there is a kind of a dark side because people people get to the point where they get really suicidal over this they dig like i have men in my office all the time that are they're suffering silently because there's not guys like you out there that are talking about this and they get to a point where they take themselves out i lost a friend last week um who got shot in columbine and then got addicted to different substances and uh he's he uh he took himself out you know, two weeks ago. Um, and it's, uh, it's more common than you think because people are suffering and they're not realizing that there's other people out there that are in as dark of a place as they are. And I, and I can guarantee you porn adds to that experience uh, because it gets pretty dark and these guys come out of like a 12 hour binge and they just hate themselves. They, they just get filled with shame. They get filled with guilt and despair and they don't know how to crawl out like a gambling addict who's burned all their bridges and all the money's gone and they've, they've tapped everyone, they've borrowed all the money, they get, they get suicidal real fast. It's the same thing with these kids. They're thinking nobody else is, is doing this like I'm doing this and no one else is turned on by this crazy crap that I'm looking at and they, they feel real twisted, they feel disgusting, they feel like no one could ever love me for who I am. And uh, so we're kind of losing a generation of guys. So if uh, I really appreciate you by um, being willing to put talk about this stuff and put it out there. And um, I'll tell you what a great resource is, is itap.com. Um, I-I-T-A-P. It's a uh, Patrick Carnes, who's really the, the guy that trained me and, and others. Uh, he, he really put this on the map in the 1980s as, a, as, an, as that sex could be an addiction. And uh, he'd be a great guy to interview because he is—he's the guy that's done all the a lot of research on this. I'll have to check that yeah. out. But um, right. thank you so much for your time today, Michael. It's been a pleasure, and um, best of best of luck with the people that you work with. All right, brother. Thank you. Lynn Camilla. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I've, I've been really looking forward to speak with you. Uh, after the discussions we've had, I'm really interested to learn so much more about, um, about your opinion on this subject, really. But before we get started, would you mind um, describing what you do uh, for our listeners so they know who you are and a little bit of background on uh, your experience in this subject? Sure. Well, my name is Lynn Camella, and I'm an associate professor of gender and sexuality studies at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. And my PhD is in communication and media studies. So I do a lot of work on gender, sexuality, popular culture, 
But the majority of my research really focuses on the adult entertainment industry. So I've co-edited a volume called New Views on Pornography, Sexuality, Politics, and the Law with my co-editor, Shira Tarrant, and also wrote a book on the history of feminist-run sex toy stores in the United States, a book called Vibrator Nation. So I've been very um, immersed as a researcher in looking at, you know, um, the adult industry and different segments of the industry. But a lot of my research focuses on um, both the economic and kind of cultural organization of the industry. Um, I'm interested in the people who work in the industry, the conditions under which they work, um, and the larger kind of uh, just economic world of this very, very popular form of popular culture. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a, it's a very unique uh, line of work. What got you into this or what interested you in this in the first place? Um, you know, I think sometimes as researchers, we don't necessarily have a grand vision or plan. <laughs> sometimes we just have questions, right? We kind of start with a question or two and then those interests kind of build. We start to do a little research. We start to dig. We start to find out more about a particular topic. And before we know it, 10 years down the road, we have a list of publications and a research agenda. But um, I think, you know, what really got me into kind of studying the adult industry was the fact that I was really interested in questions of gender and questions of public sexual culture, those ways in which sexuality goes public, right? Um, Through public spaces, through adult stores, through pornography, and the types of meanings that circulate more broadly. We often think about sex and sexuality as a very private domain, but there's a whole segment of popular culture in which uh, sexuality assumes very public forms of representation. So that that was really what got me interested, was was kind of shifting the focus of sex away from something that um, people do in private, although they certainly do, but really thinking about um, what are the various ways in which sexuality goes public. And I was particularly interested in that when it came to women, you know, representations of female sexuality. So that got me started, and then 15 years down the road here. Well, I, I think it's, um, I'm really pleased to have you on, and it sounds like you're the perfect person to talk to about this subject, because just to, to give, I suppose, the people listening a bit of background, I, st- I chose to do this this subject because... I I studied psychology and I love psychology and I love staying up to date with um, I religiously every day follow or look at Reddit psychology, uh, which is like an amalgamation of loads of the most recent like studies. And I see a lot of uh, studies. Well, not a lot, but now and then studies about pornography. And most of the time they seem to be quite negative. I think that I've also seen, um, as you know, like some TED talks and a lot of time they portray it in a, a negative light. So I was under the impression that pornography was was a drug or was, was dangerous or, or particularly um, something that we should be more cautious about than um, we are right now. And then obviously I reached out to you and, and you, you said to me like, um, like I, I, this is a common misconception. And according to uh, research of well-respected colleagues of yours or people you know, 
you're like, actually, this isn't the case. And that's why from that moment, I was like, wow, I got to speak to you because I'm hearing so <laughs> many, I'm hearing so many things from, from so many other people. And the truth is I'm, I'm just on a quest for knowledge. This is, this what? is one of the reasons why I do this podcast. I really want to learn. Um, and I want to share that information. And so speaking to you today is a great opportunity to understand the other side of the story, which, which most people don't want to hear because for example, this morning I spoke to a doctor who, um, he treats, uh, porn addiction and I was that's one side of it and that's the side of the story that you always hear and I've always had that kind of caution of thinking like in line with him but I'm really I really want to know more about your research and yeah I suppose yeah your 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 opinion on the subject well to be clear I don't study quote-unquote porn addiction per se but I'm certainly aware of the degree to which that idea has gained popularity and Basically, it's something that people really accept at face value, right? And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, So to back up a little bit is I think that um, one thing that might be useful to um, your listeners is to think historically about pornography and um, what has been categorized um, at different moments of time as obscenity, right? Which is itself a really vague term. But, but the idea of pornography having negative impact is longstanding. We can go back to the late 19th century with moral crusader Anthony Comstock in the U.S., who was the man behind the Comstock Acts, which kind of were, you know, the first obscenity laws in the U.S. And he really positioned pornography as, um, you know, something that was going to incite, you know, um, you know, not just sinfulness, but that it was dangerous, particularly to young people, and that it was a a kind of sign of moral decay. So that's one way of kind of that pornography was was, uh, initially framed. Um, In in the 20th century, particularly during the Cold War, there were fears that that pornography um, would lead to communism and that it would kind of break down um, the family, which was seen as so central to kind of American rhetoric around the time of the, uh, you know, Cold War. And then certainly by the 1970s and 1980s, the meaning of pornography shifted again. And that was when a lot of anti-pornography feminists began to rail against the dangers of porn and positioned it as particularly harmful to women. So here we are in the early 21st century, and we have a different framing of pornography, and that is that pornography is a public health crisis. We hear that a lot right now. And the porn addiction label is part of that, right? So I want to be clear about that. The the negative associations of pornography have shifted over time. The current framing um, in terms of porn as an emergency is related to public health and in particular this uh, concern about porn addiction. Um, But that's relatively new right? Um, the, the, the kind of public health framing. So today, you know, pornography is blamed for a myriad of things. Pornography is blamed for erectile dysfunction in men. Pornography is being blamed for increased levels of divorce and the disintegration of relationships and family. It's being blamed for low workplace productivity. It's being blamed for teen sexting. If there is something to kind of blame pornography for, people are going to blame pornography. But going back to 
to your question, this idea that many, many people accept as truth that, that, um, you know, uh, that porn, um, is, is addictive and therefore inherently dangerous to society and to relationships. Um, research done by neuroscientists, people who actually study the brain <laughs> and study patterns of brain responses have found that in fact, pornography does not affect the brain in the way that a drug like cocaine affects the brain or the way that nicotine affects the brain or even the way that um, gambling addiction affects the brain, right? Pornography doesn't do that. Nonetheless, even without that science, there is a whole industry that has emerged, a therapeutic industry, inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment, to treat people with porn addiction and also with sex addiction. Um, the problem is that these kind of treatment programs, which are real cash cows, they're expensive, they're making a lot of money, that there's just not the science there to inform the therapeutic interventions that, that are happening. Um, and, and so this isn't to say that there aren't people that maybe have what we might think of as problem viewing behavior, maybe viewing pornography excessively. Maybe they're viewing pornography compulsively. But excessive viewing of pornography or compulsive viewing isn't the same thing as an addiction, right? That's, that's, that's very different. So it's not to say that, you know, like anything else, right? We hear these stories of, of teenagers that, you know, play video games 20 hours a day. I would say that's a bit compulsive. I would say that's probably excessive. I would say that 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 might be causing some disruption to their ability to like, live their lives and work productivity pro productively. Um, but uh, we we you know there's not the same kind of concern when people um, are compulsively maybe engage with other activities or, or other forms of media. Is such a, a, a hot button issue, and you know the negative um, messages surrounding pornography have such a longstanding history that that you know um, you know framing porn as an addiction for a lot of people just makes sense. They already think porn is bad. So, do you would you say that it's more of a mislabeling in the sense that we're, there are a lot of people in society or the people perpetuating this idea, they're too keen to throw in the word addiction and say, say addiction like straight away when really there's perhaps stages in front of it like compulsion beforehand. Or, yeah, or... I, I just think the idea, there, there's just, the, the research just doesn't substantiate the description porn addiction, you know, and um, so I, I wouldn't use it at all. You know, you can talk about excessive porn viewing, you could talk about maybe even problem porn viewing, but the addiction label is inaccurate, period, full stop. It's just, it's just inaccurate. Um, but it fits with this larger framework, right, that pornography is a public health crisis, responsible for all of these um, personal problems, problems in relationships, and, and kind of negative social impact. 
Um, so it, it fits it fits that idea, and and uh, you know unfortunately it's really gained currency. You know, um, and and when I say that it's gained currency. Um, you know, the idea that pornography is a public health crisis was actually written into the Republican platform in 2016. And that Republican platform was something that Donald Trump signed, right? Agreeing that, you know, this is a, a public health crisis. In the United States, since 2016, over a dozen states have declared pornography to be a public health crisis. So there are a lot of lawmakers who have also gotten on the bandwagon, right? And they're spending a lot of time discussing this and debating this. And, you know, we need to kind of take active measures as lawmakers to combat pornography as a public health crisis. And what concerns me about that, frankly, is that, you know, that means that they're not addressing other <laughs> crises that are far more acute, like the opiate crisis or the gun, you know, crisis example, right? Um, so, so there is currently, I think, um, a lot of traction that that framing both of pornography as a public health crisis and porn, uh, pornography addiction have that are translating into policy and are translating into laws. And, um, you know, there's a lot of debate and discussion. And there, as you pointed out at the outset, there's a lot of disagreement, right? There's, there's, not, there's not agreement on this issue. There, there are, you know, um, you know, clearly different camps, one of which firmly believes that, that porn is like a drug. And they're going to... Um, talk about pornography in that way. If they're a therapist, they're going to design treatment strategies to address that problem. If they're a clinic, they're going to develop, you know, treatment programs and invite, you know, quote unquote, porn addicts and sex addicts to come and spend a very expensive month to kind of cure something that scientists don't believe is real. Okay. Do you think that porn can have negative consequences on a, a person's, um, I suppose, life? You, 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 you have mentioned it. You mentioned about, like, compulsion. Um, do you think that it, it could have an effect on a person and their relationships or even their psychology or, to any extent, their psychology or the way they perceive women or perceive relationships or anything? Is there any extent to which it could have real negative consequences in your eyes that we should be aware of? Well I mean, that's a question I get a lot. And I think people that um, do research on and write about the adult industry, that's a really frequent question. And I think, you know, what I would want to do is maybe shift the question a little bit and say that um, pornography is a form of media. It's a form of popular culture. And like all forms of media and all forms of culture they're communicating messages to us, right? They're communicating messages to us about gender, about sexuality. So I'm always cautious to exceptionalize pornography, right? Like we put a lot of like, ooh, should we be scared of pornography? We should probably be more worried about mainstream Hollywood films <laughs> because they're also saturated, if you think about it, with a lot of sexism with a lot of um, messages that aren't always great about love and relationships. And so the question to me isn't about what messages do does pornography communicate to people, but you know, being willing to situate pornography 
um, as a, a kind of system of meaning making and uh, ideologies within a larger, you know, media world, um, right? That there's pornography, but there's also Hollywood films and there's also music and there's also print publications and online publications and, you know, um, online forums and all of those things cumulatively are contributing to how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, how we think about love and relationships and kind of sexuality and health, right? So, um, you know, my answer is, is really, you know, to, to kind of um, really challenge this idea that um, pornography is as exceptional a product of media culture as many people paint it to be. You know, um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, it's also important, I think, to trouble the notion that, you know, there's a singular pornography. Um, there's not, you know, pornography is many, many different things created by different types of people. So there's mainstream pornography, which we kind of associate with Los Angeles. There's indie porn producers. There's feminist identified porn producers, there's gay porn producers, lesbian porn producers, there are, you know, different types of pornography created for different types of audiences. And I think that also is something that gets lost in this discussion. Um, you know, pornography often gets reduced to this kind of singular thing, this monolith that you know, people assume that they know exactly, you know, what it is when it's a much more diverse and varied um, form of media with, you know, numerous um, subgenres. But, you know, we, you know, that that's often, again, not not how it's talked about. So, um, you know, again, you know, a lot of people start from the perspective that porn is bad, and then you know their ideas about pornography expand from there. But the fact of the matter is, we still don't know a lot about people's relationships to pornography, and it's really challenging to measure. I mean, you studied psychology, you probably know this very well. It's very difficult to design a good study that can measure effects. So it's challenging to do that. Why? Because we don't live in bubbles. Our ideas are shaped by numerous influences. So it's challenging to kind of say definitively your ideas about women or your ideas about sex or your ideas about relationship are the result of the fact that you watch pornography once a day or once a week or once a month or once a year when we have we move through a world where you know we're bombarded by messages and we're saturated with different ideas so we're swimming through a cultural world that's always informing us and it's challenging you know i'm always hesitant you know when it comes to that like how does pornography affect us you know there's there's still a lot that we don't know. And part of the challenge is how to um, design studies that are reliable and that, that are, you know, really, you know, well conducted and well conceived that, that can illuminate some of these things. Um, 
yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, I, yeah, no, it definitely does. And I was thinking that when um you sent over the material for for me to read of like um to to inform you of more of your opinion or more of uh, not your opinion, but certainly the work done by other people that you know. And I, I could see that, especially um, when it said about uh, erectile dysfunction, for example, saying that the sciences um, or researchers or whatever are quick to draw a, a correlation between the two when actually, obviously, there are other factors you got to take into place. And I suppose that's going to be one really hard thing to, to focus on, the fact that um, what people like beforehand or what else, how, how they behave or how they act and... You can't really say like they are a result of this because of pornography. I'm sure it might play a factor in one way or another, but drawing that line and saying this is how it is is going to be hard. And also, I I remember a while ago, I think it might have been from one of the many TED talks that I I don't think this one was too critical about pornography. I was talking about it in quite an objective way, um, a fair and objective way. But they said that one of the reasons why it's so hard to study pornography is because one, people aren't always honest about it, and it's still a subject that most people are shy or timid to talk about. And two, because it's such a widely consumed uh, material that it's really hard to find a control group. Yeah, I think all of those are, uh, you know, good, um, good and valid points. I mean, it's a it's a really interesting discussion. I mean, I, I I was I was really interested when I got your email, you know, and and you sent me the link to the TED Talk. I was like, whoa! And I did a little research, right? I was like, oh wait, you know, when I said where where did you get your information? And one of the things you sent me was this link to a TED Talk. And, and I had to do some digging around. I'm like, well, who is this academic expert, right? Who's sharing this information in a TED Talk? That kid was a college student. <laughs> that tech talk. He didn't look very old. Uh, no, I gotta say, he looked, looked pretty young. He was um, a, a, a college sophomore who was invited to give a TED talk. And I thought that was really interesting and it kind of illuminated my point, right? That where do people get their information? when it comes to different topics, including but not only pornography. And um, I think, you know, the it, it begs a bigger question about um, the, the role that um, popular media can play a really powerful role in amplifying misinformation. And I think, you know, media has played a role in perpetuating this myth of porn addiction and amplifying this idea of pornography as an inherent public health crisis. But, um, you know, the TED Talk was an interesting moment for me because I just thought, well, this is a problem if people are listening to and, and not to. I mean, I'm a college professor. I teach young people. They are smart. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But there's a difference between a college sophomore giving a, a TED Talk and, you know, somebody with a Ph.D. and 20 years experience, you know, conducting research or a neuroscientist doing research. Right. So I think part of the issue is twofold. I think a lot of people lack basic kind of research literacy. They don't really know how to tell the difference between kind of good research and bad research. So, you know, for them, you know, maybe a TED Talk stands in as something like really official or really authoritative. Or, you know, if this person on a stage giving a TED Talk is saying it, it must be true. Um, so I think there's a research literacy is, uh, issue. And then I think there's a larger issue of porn literacy. 
people just don't have a lot of kind of information to understand the world of pornography. And I think when you lack misinformation, that void, or when you lack information rather, about any topic, it's easy for that void. If you think about a lack of information being an empty vessel, it's easy for that void to get filled with like anything, whether it's accurate or not. So I think two issues that are related to this in general that that play a role in how a lot of people think about pornography is the issue of research literacy and then the bigger issue of a lack of just kind of porn literacy. Um, and people just don't know how to navigate kind of the, the messages that are out there and um, evaluate their uh, kind of uh, evaluate their truth, I guess. Do you, would you say that you think um, society's current relationship with pornography is a healthy one? You know, again, I, I, I think that uh, the, the whole kind of large, like, is society, well, who is, who, you know, who are we talking about, right? Are we talking about people who watch porn 10 hours a day? Or are we talking about a couple that, you know, twice a year watches pornography to spice up their relationship? So I think that people have different relationships to pornography. I mean, that's what the research shows. Um, I have colleagues in the UK that have done some research and they've done an interesting study whereby instead of kind of starting from the place of presuming that pornography is bad, they have said, you know, as researchers, you know, we just simply don't know enough about people's relationships to pornography, why they use it and how they use it. So why don't we start there? Why don't we just kind of gather some qualitative um, interview data and survey-based data to try to get a bigger, you know, understanding of why people view pornography? And they found a range of things. I mean, they found that sometimes people um, view pornography out of boredom. Um, view it for, you know, some kind of uh, sexual release or even stress release. Um, they view it as a leisure activity because they have time to kill. They have an hour. Their favorite television show isn't on yet. They're just going to kind of, you know, go to, a, go to a porn site or put in their favorite DVD if they still have those. Um, for some people, it is a way for them to kind of explore their sexuality, to get a sense of what they might like or might not like. And um, their research also found that, you know, particularly people with fetishes and kinks, it was a way for them to kind of, you know, um, see representations of those things, even when they weren't, you know, practicing quote unquote kinky sex in their relationships. So they found some interesting things in terms of you know, people's um, motivations for, for watching porn that I think, again, really challenges the stereotype that, you know, it's, it's just all about this kind of sexual drive or this sexual need that's not being fulfilled in, in other ways. So, you know, I don't think that pornography is inherently any worse for society than, you know, um, mainstream Hollywood fair or listening to music or playing video games or a host of, of other things. Um, but I do think that, you know, it, it, it is worth asking questions about, you know, um, 
you know, what porn are you watching? Do you know anything about the conditions under which it's been produced? Are people consenting to being, you know, in, in the pornography that's being filmed? Are they being compensated fairly? Are they being treated well on set? So I think it is worth, and this goes back to porn literacy, what do you know about the pornography that you're watching? Um, who produced it? Under what conditions? And, you know, I will say that, you know, for people that... Um, visit uh, free tube sites for porn, you know, a lot of that pornography has been pirated. That means it's been stolen. <laughs> so are you actually an ethical porn consumer? <laughs> if you're going to, to sites that, you know, have basically pirated other people's um, media productions, right? So I think there are lots of ethical considerations about how pornography is made, but also ethical considerations for consumers of pornography. And I think advocates for porn performers and advocates for the industry would say, pay for your pornography. You know, if you're watching it and you care about the people working in the industry, if you want to be an ethical porn consumer, kind of watching stolen media is not the way to go about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of interesting issue when you really get down in, into, into the weeds and, and really start maybe, um, you know, asking questions. You know, there is nothing inherently negative or dangerous about, you know, an adult, let me underscore adult, someone 18 or over, um, accessing legal adult entertainment. You know, pornography is legal. It's not, you know, it's not an illegal form of entertainment. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about the, you know, construction of pornography as dangerous and damaging and potentially addictive actually causes a lot of stress for people. And that's probably more dangerous. <laughs> you know, the guilt, the stress, the shame of, oh, God forbid, I watched, you know, I'm a married man who once a year watches pornography. You know, I'm a terrible person. No, you're not a terrible person. <laughs> No, I, I I agree. I think um I think the one thing that we we can agree on, and even like um after speaking with the doctor this morning, who's of a very different opinion oh, to yourself, yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> I think we we can all agree that this is a complicated issue, um, and there's a lot of research out there, but there's also a lot of conflicting research. And I think the one thing that we need to do above anything that that both sides of um both sides of the argument can agree on is that it needs to be discussed more needs to be looked into more and it needs to be an issue which is I suppose considered more seriously rather than skirting around or like shamefully or timidly kind of discussing or um but yeah who, who knows um what the future will hold or which way direction it will go but uh hopefully we'll have a more positive and it will be better for everyone and yeah who knows hopefully we can find a, a solution where everyone's happy thank you so much for your time today lynn and yeah it's been really great talking to you it's been really nice to hear uh an opinion which is something different to what i'm what i'm used to hearing and there's there's the main aim for this this podcast is just to understand more about complicated topics well thanks for having me on that's our show thank you so much for listening as always, you can find more details about the podcast and the references on this show today at sociable.co. Take care. Bye.